Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about access to fresh food, a scarcity still in the city of Detroit. But that may be changing in a significant way because of the new People's Food Co-op, a community-owned grocery store that's being built in the middle of the city. We're going to talk with Malik Yakini, a board member of the new co-op, about food, about land, about equity, and the future of fresh food access in Detroit. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you grew up here anytime in the last 40 or 50 years, you've seen and experienced the exodus of fresh food options from so many parts of the city of Detroit. Once upon a time, there were groceries on nearly every corner in this city, something that might be really hard to imagine if you live here now. There were stores like Great Scott, Farmer Jack, Chatham, A&P, and so many others, including lots of very small local grocers who were vital parts of the neighborhoods where they were located. But as the city emptied out, and as racism and class aggravated the loss of people with the loss of resources and opportunity, Detroit began its decline into the ugly, if exaggerated, space of being a, quote, food desert. A lot of people have a problem with that phrase, but certainly in relative terms, the access to fresh food in this city feels like a desert compared to what we had before. Sometimes called a, quote, third space, grocery stores really do weave neighborhoods together. It's a place where people talk, where jobs are created, and of course, where fresh food is immediately accessible. That food nourishes people, it keeps us full, It enriches a community, and it is a basic, pivotal service. It is a need. It is not a luxury. And despite the recent wave of a few new fresh food grocers who have begun to come back to Detroit, a lot of city residents, by some measures, almost 40%, are still food insecure. Now, there are a lot of people who have been working on this problem for a long time. But one person in particular has been working really diligently for a very long time with a coalition of community members to get to the roots of this problem. Malik Yakini is the co-founder and executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. He is both a thought leader and an activist who is leading the charge to create access to healthy food, fresh food, for city residents. One of his most important projects is the Detroit People's Food Co-op, which recently broke ground in the city's north end. Now, later in the hour, we're going to talk a little more about the importance of having many black-led development projects here in Detroit. We're going to talk about a new initiative to create more access to capital for black-led development projects. But for now, it's important to note that the People's Food Co-op is one of the most important black-led projects in the city, at least according uh, to many people and by my estimation. It is designed to offer residents a critical service. It ensures collective communal benefits. It is a third space. 
I'm really excited today to welcome Malik Yakini back to Detroit today to talk about the People's Food Co-op and many other land and food and equity issues here in the city of Detroit. Malik, it's really great to have you here. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be back. So, as I said, you've finally broken ground on building the Detroit People's Food Co-op. But before we talk about that moment uh, and and where we're headed with that, I want to pull the lens back just a little bit because the Detroit People's Food Co-op is part of a larger development, uh, a, a larger effort to to get at this uh, food insecurity. So I want to have you put it in the context of the other things that you're trying to accomplish here. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen. And uh, let me start by saying that this is definitely a collective project. I, I often cringe when I hear uh, phrases like Malik Yakini's food co-op, <laughs> because, because it is certainly not uh, my food co-op. I'm right. honored to play a role in the leadership of it. But the most important thing about this project is that it's a collective project and there's many people involved on many different levels that are making this happen. And again, this is one of the most important attributes of this project, the collective nature of it, as you, as you just said. Mm-hmm. But the larger context is that uh, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network was formed in 2006 uh, because of our concern about several things. One, uh, food insecurity, as you identified, and, you know, of course, there's a tie-in between food insecurity and poverty. And, in fact, you had an excellent program yesterday on uh, poverty among children. Mm -hmm. And so there's a a definite tie-in. Most of the people who are food insecure are also suffering from from poverty. And so we've understood from the beginning that we can't solve this problem in isolation, but the struggle for food justice and for everyone to have equitable access to high-quality food has to be paired with the struggle to eliminate poverty. So food insecurity is one of the things that we're concerned about. Mm-hmm. And frankly, we think it's obscene that in a country as wealthy as the United States of America, that anyone should be hungry. So that's one of our basic concerns. We're also concerned, though, about the extractive retail food economy that functions in black communities like Detroit. And Detroit is still an overwhelmingly black city. And we see the same kind of scheme playing out in other cities where we have large concentrations of African people, African-American people. And what that looks like typically is some other ethnic group, which has experience in the retail grocery business, comes into black communities and dominates the retail space and extracts profits from those communities, which typically leave the communities and go to the communities where those merchants live. So this is really a problem that Malcolm X identified you know, uh, almost 60 years ago mm-hmm. uh, when he talked about, uh, he, 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 he termed it as uh, merchants coming to our community, and then when the sun goes down, they leave with a basket full of money. <laughs> and so we're saying this, the same paradigm continues to play out. And, of course, even to understand that, we have to look at that against the backdrop of the intentional destruction of black business districts throughout this country. Uh, in this city, of course, you know, we know about the Black Bottom area and Hastings Street. But there were other, uh, other examples of how black communities that had business districts have been undermined. And so now you have uh, a, a large segment of the population that doesn't have businesses within their communities that they own. And they become, frankly, easy prey for merchants who can come in, who can get the financing and can set up grocery stores in our community. So I just want to identify that we are concerned not only about food insecurity, but we're concerned about the extractive retail food economies that uh, function in black communities. And we're concerned about creating what we call self-determining food economies. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that brings us quite nicely to the idea of the Detroit people's food co-op. So, so tell our listeners uh, what that is and how it's different from the things that you just described uh, that go on not only in cities like Detroit, but uh, in, in cities with black majorities all over, all over our country. Sure. So first of all, a food co-op or a co-op of any type is a co-op that is collectively owned and collectively governed. Uh, one of the principles of a co-op is that there's one person, one vote. So it's not like a corporate structure where if, let's say you have lots of money, Stephen, and you can buy 500 
thousand dollars worth of shares of stock in a company, and I only have a little money. I only have a thousand dollars. I can only buy a thousand dollars worth of shares. That you know, you would get five hundred times the votes that I get. Within a co-op, it's a flat horizontal structure where everyone gets one vote, and so that's really significant as we learn how to uh, create community-based governance structures. We learn how to make decisions among ourselves that, uh, that help us to reach our collective aspirations. The other aspect of a co-op, which is different, is that the members are actually owners. In fact, with the Detroit People's Food Co-op, we use the term member owners, and I'm proud to say we, as of today, have more than 1,600 member owners. Mm-hmm. But we use the term member owner to distinguish uh, the type of ownership or type of membership we have from places like Sam's Club, where you are called a member, but really what happens is you pay a fee in order to uh, be able to shop at the store. You have no decision-making power. You are certainly not an owner. When you buy a membership in the Detroit People's Food Co-op, you're a member owner, so not only can you participate in decision-making, particularly in this phase as we're uh, moving towards the opening, the actual opening of the store next year, there's hundreds of decisions that have to be made still about the character of the store, about the, the feeling within the store, about product line, about design. Member owners get to participate on committees that shape all those things. Mm. Uh, finally, in any year the store is profitable, member owners get a share of those profits. So it's a way of circulating wealth within the community as opposed to extracting wealth. Yeah. Uh, and so for consumers, for people who are looking for fresh food options and don't find an awful lot of them, you know, accessible to to the neighborhoods where they live. What does this food co-op offer them? What what, what is the advantage of being part of this in terms of food access, um, you know, as as in addition to this community Mm -hmm. ownership? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, we're, of course, not motivated by profit. Let me start by saying that, that we realize that the store has to be profitable in order to have longevity and sustainability. But as individuals, we're not motivated by profit. What we're motivated by is the collective well-being of our community. And part, one of the foundational elements of collective well-being is having adequate and culturally appropriate food. Um, And so the Detroit People's Food Co-op will present an outlet where Detroiters will be able to obtain high-quality, nutrient-dense food that in many cases will be grown in and around the Detroit area by local farmers. So we are very concerned. And you might know, and I realize that, in fact, part of your earlier question I really didn't respond to, you, when you asked me about the larger context, I didn't really go into the things that Detroit Black Community Food Security Network has done in, in the past mm-hmm. and continues to do. But one of the things we do, of course, is we're very involved in urban agriculture, and we operate D-Town Farm, one of the largest farms in the city of Detroit. But we are also very concerned about the, the 1,500 or 1,600 other gardeners and farmers in the city of Detroit, many of whom are producing food for retail sales. And so we are intentionally centering those local urban farmers as suppliers of seasonal produce in the Detroit People's Food Co-op. So uh, you, if, you, if you buy, let's say, uh, a tomato that was harvested yesterday in the city of Detroit, it's going to be much more dense in nutrients than if you go to uh, another store. I won't name other stores, but if you go to another store and buy a tomato that was grown a month ago in California, it was, was harvested while it was green, was packed into, uh, in, into a, a truck or, or a, uh, a train, filled with gas in order to, to slow the ripening process and then shipped to Detroit and sat on, and, you know, in a warehouse for a while. And, you know, so the longer the time uh, elapses between the time food is harvested and the time it's consumed, the, the, the less nutrients that you have. The less, so the, the less fresh it is, right? Yeah. Yes, the less fresh it is and thus the less nutrients. The minute you uh, harvest a fruit or vegetable, it begins to decline. And so you want to have maximum, the optimal nutrients. You want to eat that as close to harvest as possible. And so we'll be able to achieve that 
by uh, buying from local producers and, and, and the retail consumers will be able to have access to those local producers. But there's also an environmental advantage to that. Um, in the world today, most people live in large metropolitan, live in or around large metropolitan areas. And so it makes sense now to have centers of food production near where we have centers of population density. A hundred years ago, most human beings on the planet lived in rural areas, and most food was produced in rural areas. But as the demographics change, we have to change also how we uh, are producing and transporting food. So currently in the United States, food is produced about 1,500 miles on average from where it's consumed. Hmm. So to transport through these tremendous uh, food miles, we have to emit tremendous amounts of carbon into the atmosphere, and the food system is one of the major contributors of global warming, both the transportation of food, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles, but also the packaging of food, the, the use of chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides. All those things in the industrial food system have a negative impact on the, on the, uh, the environment. So we're not only centering local growers because we know that that uh, ultimately helps uh, consumers to get more nutrient-dense food, but we're also concerned about the um, positive contribution to the environment that buying local foods uh, makes. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, Malik Yakini, who is co-founder and executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. He's also a board member of the Detroit People's Food Co-op, which is a community-owned grocery that uh, is being built here in the city of Detroit. We're talking about the food co-op, uh, what it will bring to Detroiters that we don't have uh, right now. Uh, but we're also talking about the broader context of access to fresh food for Detroiters uh, in a city that does not have uh, as many grocery options as it once did and certainly does not have many locally owned and operated uh, grocery options. Uh, we're also going to talk about land and land use. We're going to talk about equity in a broader sense, uh, a number of things uh, that are all, all connected uh, to this this access to fresh food question. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us what the fresh food landscape looks like in your neighborhood. Uh, what kind of service uh, do you get where you live? Uh, is it easy to find a grocery store that's actually selling uh, fresh food? Is it easy to find a grocery store that uh, is part of the community, is dug into the community, is maybe making uh, contributions to the community beyond just selling food? Um, also, give us a sense of uh, how you might change the food landscape here in the city of Detroit. It is changing, not just because of the things that uh, the Detroit People's Food Co-op is going to do, but uh, you do have more interest now from mainstream grocers in the city of Detroit. Uh, it seems every few years uh, they seem to open uh, a new store in uh, a different part of the city. Is that uh, an important part of the solution as well. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can try to include you in the conversation um, that way. Uh, let's start today with Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Hey. I've... Uh, been familiar with uh, Brother Yakini's work for some time, and I just wanted to ask him a question as to uh, whether or not uh, it's part of the future of his project to establish more uh, groceries or centers for uh, fresh fruit sale and distribution in the city, particularly in underserved areas, uh, and that uh, if he has a need for uh, 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 land-based uh, brick-and-motor operations. Hmm. Uh, great question, uh, Gene. Uh, Malik, what's the answer? Thank you very much. I'm assuming that was my brother, Gene Cunningham. It, it um, is. <laughs> yeah, who has, who has a long history of, of striving for equity in the city of Detroit, and I salute him and in many ways stand on his shoulders. Uh, he's kind of a few years older than me, so as a very young activist, uh, when he was at Wayne State University, you know, of course, <laughs> he was looking at the work that he was doing. So glad to see he's still in the fight. 
Uh, so, you know, we have discussed the possibility of opening multiple stores, uh, but I have to frankly tell you that we're, this one store has been so complicated, the financing for it, the acquisition of the real estate and all the other elements that go into a project like this have been so complicated that really we've been almost singularly focused on getting this up and built. And then once we get it built, we have to make sure the store is successful you know, even though even though it's a co-op, we're still operating within the context of a capitalist system. <laughs> right. And if we and if we if our uh, expenses for a long period of time exceed our revenues, then the co-op will close. So we want to build build a model which is successful. And after we've done that, we certainly are interested in how we might expand that model in whole or in part to other parts of the city. But also, we are working with a cohort of other black lake co-ops. Uh, functioning throughout the country as part of our membership in the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. And so there are some co-ops that have already opened, and we are learning from them. For example, the Gym City Co-op in Dayton, Ohio, opened about a year ago. So the Detroit People's Food Co-op is really learning from the lessons that they've acquired. But then there's co-ops that are not as far along the development process as we are, and they're learning from us. And so we're looking at this idea of replication, not only within the Detroit context, but on a, na- on a national basis. Yeah, yeah. Okay, coming up, we are going to continue this conversation with Malik Yakini about the Detroit People's Food Co-op, about access to fresh food, about equity in the city of Detroit. We're also going to talk a little about uh, land use and how that plays into the equity questions here in the city, how the city is changing and what that means for longtime Detroiters. We want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number here. And you can go to Facebook or Twitter and we'll work in the conversation that way. We've got Robert in Detroit and Bernadette in Old Redford on the line. If you want to join them, again, that number is 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about a really exciting new project uh, in the middle of Detroit, uh, the Detroit People's Food Co-op, which is scheduled to open uh, sometime next year. Uh, It will be a community-led and community-driven project uh, aimed at not only giving Detroiters better access to fresh food, uh, but also including more Detroiters and especially the majority population here in Detroit, African-Americans, uh, in the ownership and direction uh, of that of that project and in the ownership and direction of the idea of access to fresh food, something that we have lost an awful lot of uh, over my lifetime in the city and something that uh, our guest, Malik Yakini, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network uh, has really been focused on for a really long time. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Call and tell us what you make of the landscape uh, for fresh food here in Detroit uh, and how it's changing. Also, how the city is changing and how that affects uh, access to uh, fresh food for the population that has been here for a really long time and suffered through the decline of access to fresh food over the last 50 or 60 years. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there and uh, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Malik, before we get back to our callers, I do want to talk more explicitly uh, about race and and the role that racism plays in uh, the, the the landscape of access to fresh food that we have now uh, and the barriers that uh, white supremacy in particular 
uh, presents to the work that uh, that you're doing to, to, to kind of counter that. So I, I want to talk specifically about this phrase that I used in the open, and I said it's kind of an exaggerated phrase and it's a little problematic, but food desert is something that Detroit gets called uh, a lot. I see it. I see it in local media sometimes. I see it in national media uh, sometimes. You have a different term uh, for that, and you call it food apartheid. I think that's a good place to start talking about the role that race plays in all of this. Uh, sure. Thank you very much uh, for that important question. Um, so I want to start by saying that I'm going to say something that's going to be highly unpopular, and I'm sure <laughs> people are going to take exception with, and that is that America is a settler colonial state. And that when we look at the question of land, we have to start with the understanding that the entire land mass was colonized and the indigenous population was dispossessed of land. And then we also have to start with the profound understanding of the enslavement of Africans in America and the extraction of African-American labor to create wealth in America and throughout the Western world. So we have those two factors, which are two factors that if we're going to have anything approaching justice and equity in American society, have to be resolved. And so when we look at the question of land, land ownership is typically passed down from generation to generation. Or once you have a piece of paper called a deed, you can sell it to other people and they're not making any more land. And so what we see is the concentration of land ownership throughout the United States in the hands of people who are defined as white. Within the realm of food and agriculture, we have about 97% of farmland, which is owned by people who are, who are defined as white, with about uh, 3% being owned collectively by black people, indigenous people, uh, 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 Latinx folks. And so we have a tremendous problem at the root of American society when it comes to looking at land access. And of course, that plays out in a place like the city of Detroit, because even here we see, you know, tremendous concentration of land ownership, particularly in Midtown and downtown, which has been clearly the areas that uh, the leadership of the city of Detroit has, has focused most heavily on developing and not to minimize the efforts that we see in communities, but there's been Tremendous amounts of capital poured into the downtown and midtown area where, again, we see this concentration of land ownership in the hands of whites. So there are multiple barriers that are part of the system of white supremacy that have caused this. There's, of course, the historical uh, policies, uh, you know, redlining, the restrictive covenants, all of those things that historically have limited uh, access to land ownership for black people or have relegated ownership to certain areas of the city. But there's also contemporary factors like the, the standards within financing. You know, if you're deemed too, too risky, then you're probably not going to get financing. And certainly uh, African-Americans in predominantly low and moderate income communities are, are considered more risky than uh, whites in more affluent communities. So there's a number of factors that play into land ownership. I do want to lift up the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund which is a collaboration between the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, Oakland Avenue Urban Farm, and Keep Growing Detroit, which started two years ago on Juneteenth Day to raise money for black farmers in Detroit to buy land that they're either currently farming on or that they'd like to farm on. And so thus far, about 70 Detroit farmers have been awarded money where they've been able to either buy the property that they're farming on or in the last year, the guidelines have changed so they also can use the funds to purchase infrastructure. And so, you know, there are these kind of community self-help efforts to, uh, to navigate this system, which is fraught with all kinds of barriers that are part of the fabric of the system of white supremacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you started by saying that you were going to say something controversial and that some people might be uncomfortable hearing that, but I guess I'd like to think that we've reached a point where fewer people have that reaction, at least, uh, than, than, than they used to, and where this kind of conversation is, is vital to the, the, the narrative that we're trying 
to struggle with, uh, not just here in Detroit, but but in this country. And maybe I'm a little more of an optimist than you are about that. Well, but, but, but I, I mean, you I, didn't no, say anything. Cra- you didn't say anything that was untrue, right? That, that, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything crazy. It was factual, right? <laughs> it was factual. You said, yeah, no, no. But there's true. a lot of things that are factual uh, that are that are not things that people are discussing, uh, you know, widely. And then also, you know, we, in this time period, we have to even, you know, we have debates about what is factual. Sure. Right. So there's, there's a whole effort to try to erase, you know, certain aspects of the history that really, you know, clearly show, uh, you know, the dominance of whites in this, in this country. So, no, it's not it's not crazy. It's not for me. It's not controversial. But I, I don't think that's the mainstream. Yeah. You know, when I hear people running for office, you know, I don't hear discussions about America being a settler colonial state. And about within the context of that, how we create justice. So it's not yet a conversation that is in the mainstream discourse. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, again, <laughs> 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's go next to Paul in Detroit. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Stephen. Uh, and uh, hello, Baba Malik. Uh, it's good to hear you on the radio again. How are um, you? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, I wanted to call in. I mean, so, so Stephen, this is this is my work. Um, I work in uh, local food, trying to help people access local produce. I, I happen to work with the DBCFSN and with the D Town Farm, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the other organizations that you've been discussing. I wanted to uh, lift up the work that is happening uh, through Detroit Community Markets. Make sure people know about that. And those are farmers markets in neighborhoods all over the city that happen many nights of the week. And so if people want to have this, just, you know, if people want access, um, at least in much less centralized locations, they can go to DetroitMarkets.org. And uh, the first on that page, there's a map of, of many, many farmers markets, some of whom are, are um, the anchor vendors are farms and farmers, and some the Detroit Eastern Market helps supply a produce stand so that even if there's no farmer going to that market, there is fresh produce there and it's mm. accessible and most of them also accept double up food bucks and i also wanted to discuss uh, i i do work with a lot of the grocers uh, independent grocers throughout the city um trying to help them access local produce for their double up food bucks program uh and, and sort of it, you know it's an interesting it is a very interesting landscape because they feel squeezed as well mm. uh and and often you know, have a, a bad reputation, uh, and my experience has been that they are they're definitely doing their best um, to try and serve their customers in their community. They know that their customers are everything and that without them they have no business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it is really a fascinating landscape uh, that we live in uh, because of the context of white supremacy and colonialism that we that we our system exists in. Um, the powers that be, there are very, very large companies, large agribusiness uh, has has the ability to lobby and has set up the system in a way that it really works very well for them. And they get to do decide prices for product and produce. And it makes it hard for these uh, for small farmers to compete. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul, I, I really love that you called and <clears throat> and added all of that uh, information uh, to this conversation, um, Malik, I want to give you a chance to respond before we go to the next caller. Uh, no, I don't really have a response except uh, yes, we support Detroit community markets and farmers markets throughout the city, and yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul, again, I, I think that was uh, really great info information. So uh, again, thanks for the call. Let's go to Bernadette and Old Redford next. Bernadette, what's on your mind? I uh, once upon a time when I was a wee girl. Um, there would be trucks, watermelon man, <laughs> egg man, twin pines that would come through the neighborhoods and you run out and, and buy your produce. That was then. Now in community gardens, I'm part of a participant in a neighborhood garden. One, people don't want to work in the dirt. And two, they don't recognize what homegrown food looks like. People are used to the uh, beautiful, shiny, everything is the same size food <laughs> that you get in the grocery store. Yeah, Bernadette, that's, that's a great observation. Um, Malik, it seems to me that, that what you're doing at D-Town Farms is really, and we haven't talked much about that uh, in this conversation, but but that's really aimed at 
giving people an opportunity at least to to know more about where food comes from, how it grows, how you can grow it responsibly, uh, all of these things that Bernadette is talking about that people have lost knowledge of and access to over a, a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And and I must be uh, kind of in the same age range as Bernadette because I remember the <laughs> you remember that? truck and the watermelon trucks also. Um, but... Um, uh, I'm sorry, repeat your question, Stephen. Yeah, I was talking about how the work that you guys are doing at D-Town Farms oh, is D-Town really Farm. okay, yeah. aimed at making people understand more about food yeah. and where yeah, it comes so from. Yeah, I, so I think more, even more importantly than however many tons of food we're growing at D-Town Farm, and we grow about three dozen different types of fruits, vegetables, and herbs each year, I think what's more important is the fact that we're really training new cohorts of urban farmers each year, both through the people that we employ we have a staff of about six who work at the farm, but also through the internships we have. For example, we have four interns from the University of Michigan. Uh, we have an intern that came to us from Decatur, Illinois. He's with us for six weeks. Uh, but also the volunteer opportunities that we have at D-Town Farm mm-hmm. on Saturday and Sunday mornings from 8 a.m. until 12. So people are able to come out, work with us side by side, learn how we do urban agriculture, and also learn what some of the ideas are that are driving of the work that we're doing. I want to give the website if people are interested sure. in uh, volunteering at D-Town Farm. That's www.dbcfsn.org. Again, that's www.dbcfsn.org. And we will also, we'll put that on our website, um, but we'll also put on our website how you can become a member of the Detroit People's Food Co-op. I mean, that's another uh, opportunity that uh, that people have to be part of uh, uh, of this work. Um, okay. Absolutely. You know, Stephen, yeah. if I could, can I say Go that ahead. now? Actually, yeah. okay. Go ahead. So yes, that's the most important thing I'm going to say today, <laughs> which is become a member owner of the Detroit People's Food Co-op, and you can do that by going to our website, which is www.detroitpeoplesfoodcoop.com. One word: www.detroitpeoplesfoodcoop. Dot com. You can join right online, and you can become a owner of this uh, incredible project. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before I have to let you go, uh, talk about the timeline here. Uh, I mentioned that you. I think you help, hope to open next year. I think that's still right. Is is that yeah? So yeah. we, as you mentioned, we broke ground April twenty third. Uh, since that time, the general contractor has been doing soil remediation. We had to remove about eight feet of soil that was on the site that had been contaminated by dry cleaners that had been there several decades before. So that work has been completed, and there's a nice pad that's been created now where they've replaced that soil. The next step is they'll begin putting the footings of the building in. And there's also a house at the far end of the property that still has to be demolished. Construction will continue until June of next year, and then it's going to take us about two months after construction to get all the equipment within the store hooked up, to get all the staff trained to operate the store so we're projecting that the Detroit People's Food Co-op will open in August of 2023. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Malik Yakini, it's really always great to have you here on the program and have these uh, really scintillating conversations with you about all of these issues. I want to thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. And I promise that next time we'll leave time to talk about another uh, endeavor of yours, Molly Wop, uh, the band that uh, you've great. always heard of. <laughs> Okay, uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss a new $11 million loan fund that is meant to drive more black-owned development in the city of Detroit. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Look around the skyline in Detroit, and you can't help but notice the cranes and other signs of construction and development and how 
They are growing, it seems, every day and every week. You've probably noticed new apartments and restaurants and bars being erected all across parts of our city. But while that development is good and it's good that it's happening, it's not often being led by development firms that are owned by African Americans and other uh, ethnic minorities who make up the majority here in the city of Detroit. There's a new fund that is trying to change that. On Tuesday, a new loan fund of $11 million was created to help early-stage minority developers gain access to capital and assistance for their projects. The EB Era Fund was created through a partnership between the nonprofit Invest Detroit and consulting firm Urge Imprint with funding from the Kresge Foundation. These groups intend to work with about 10 developers and support $1 to $200 million in development activity. To talk more about this fund, why it's important to have black-owned developers running projects in Detroit, and the capacity of this fund to build a more inclusive development landscape in the city. In the city. We've got Rod Hardeman here with us. He is the operating manager of the EB Era Fund. He's also the CEO and chief strategist of Urge Imprint, which is an integrated boutique management consulting firm headquartered here in Detroit. Rod, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about how the money in this fund will be used and how it will address the problem that that I just described, which is that the, the majority population in the city is being left out or uh, others would say left behind of this kind of incredible time in the city where uh, there's lots of opportunity to, to get things done. Yeah, I think it's an important topic, and, and that's why we've been so excited to launch the uh, to launch Ebiera this week. Um, you know, in the Detroit ecosystem, when it comes to real estate development, is actually quite unique. It is probably one of the strongest examples of public-private partnership and support to push development forward. In particular, our CDFI community um, is very attuned and adept at providing debt capital for development. Uh, for minority and women developers in particular, who often can't get access to capital from traditional banking systems. So Detroit, in, in, in by and large, has solved in many ways the debt part of the equation for real estate development projects. The challenge is, unless you have consistent access to the equity capital that you have to put in for a transaction, which is at a minimum of 10%, you still don't have the ability to complete projects. And if you can't complete one project, the question is, how could you ever grow and scale a, f- a firm to have truly economic and systemic impact in our community, in our city? Yeah. So what Abiera tries to do is says, okay, let us do this. We know there's resources for debt out there for you. We're going to help support these black and brown development firms who have an interest, and this is important, in scaling themselves from being just an individual developer but to a true firm who can employ and hire folks in the community and across the country to bring talent into the city, we'll support your efforts to um, by helping you with an equity replacement capital, uh, uh, equity replacement option. And what that means is we'll loan you money cheaper than you can go get equity for your projects and for your firm and let you grow and scale and not rob you of all your upside that you need to create the generational wealth you need to create the impact that we need you to have in the city. Yeah, yeah. So what what kinds of projects do you imagine will be created with this money? And talk about some of the developers who might benefit from, from this project. That's a great question. So these are this is geared towards commercial real estate developers. So that is pieces multifamily housing, this is mixed-use developments that have both com- uh, multifamily and commercial in it. This is for commercial developers, uh, industrial developers. Uh, th- that's the target market for this firm, uh, for this fund. And it's those individuals who want to have impact not only in the city center, which is great, but we're looking for individuals who also are keen to invest and activate the neighborhoods throughout the city. What I like to say is that we should stop talking about the city center and the neighborhoods. Downtown and Midtown are just neighborhoods in Detroit, Hmm. the two of them, and there are tons more. Let's take this money and spread it throughout the neighborhoods of Detroit. So we want 
partners and firms who are keen to think about the activation of the entire city of Detroit. So uh, there, are, there are a lot of people, I think, who probably aren't terribly familiar with the difficulty that we have in Detroit mm-hmm. getting projects going outside of this kind of 7.2-mile right. area of, of downtown and midtown. But certainly they can think of areas that are, are not experiencing the same kind of change. I mean, if you go down many of the commercial corridors, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. in the city, you just don't see uh, the same kind of things that are happening in downtown and midtown. But, but talk just a little more about why that's so hard and why making that easier is so key to including more African-American developers in the in the process. Yeah, that's such a great point. And so, you know, we, you know, as a developer, I'm very active in the District 2 area and we're um, building new projects, uh, one in particular called the Sawyer Art Apartments, one McNichols between Wyoming and Livernois. But when you go into an area early to help ignite economic development, you're taking on a lot of risk. If you're first, right, or one of the first, that means you're willing to see a vision that other folks haven't attained yet. But to go into an area first and create a vision that people haven't really realized yet, you need additional support and backers and partners to give you the time, the patient capital, the time, and the bandwidth for this dream to be realized. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is that you know, we, there are neighborhoods that have whether it be the SNF neighborhoods or other strategic neighborhood fund neighborhoods or others that have started to lay the groundwork and have partners there who are making strides. And we're saying, okay, we can provide a tool and a solution that doesn't quite exist today. We'll provide that equity like or equity replacement capital to get you, let you put your money in deals so that you can go into an area earlier, that you can have economic development that you can attract. Therefore will attract other developers and investors to come in, which will, benefit everyone in the neighborhood currently and those who are coming afterwards. One of the things that's, I think, really important here is that, um, you know, equity, like the challenges black and brown developers have around equity capital, right, are based on the systemic challenges we've experienced in this in the country, right? These are not just because folks don't have the wherewithal or the need, right? but because of the, the, the consistent economic and wealth gaps that we have in the United States. And so we have to have creative tool solutions to help jumpstart, to help solve those gaps in real time if we want to ensure that the development and the prosperity in the city is equitable across the board. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to have you talk just a little about your own experience as well um, and the challenges um, that, that, that you faced uh, trying to, to get projects going and get them done in, in this city. Yeah, it's, it, it's, you know, any small business is hard for, right, to raise capital. For developers, it's super hard. If you're a black and brown or woman-owned development firm, you just got mountains to try to climb. Mm. You know, my background is, like, I'm a public school kid. I went to Renaissance, went to Morehouse, and then I spent 20 years on Wall Street. So I learned all the things to finance and structure transactions for the biggest firms and investors around the world. And when I came home, it was still a struggle to attract capital to invest in Detroit. So if you have a 22-decade career on Wall Street and you're still struggling, that means those <laughs> who don't have, didn't have that fortitude, that ability, that access, and that blessing that I had are really going to have a problem. Yeah. And, that's what, and so when I recognized that very quickly and I got here, it's like, we have to solve this gap. If we really want this to be equitable, then we got to help not let folks start at the same uh, starting line. i got to push you forward. I got to give you a platform to jump from so that on your next two or three deals, you can move faster. Like for our first project, which is the OC art apartments that I've done that our firm has done with Georgia Namdi. Um, it, it took us years to convince the community that activating the Grand River corridor, mm. right near Trumbull in the Avery Commonwealth area, right. Was a right bet. Mm-hmm. And then once you can make that convince folks to the right bet, then you have to get a deal done. Right. And we did those deals with our own money, our own capital, with lots of support um, from lists and invest Detroit in the city of Detroit in the state of Michigan. Um, but it's still a massive lift. And so if individuals who actually have a penny or two, right, are struggling to pull these off, then how are we going to really um, remove the barriers of access unless we bring something new to the table? Mm-hmm. And I think Ebiara does that because literally and the other subtle societal point it does is that 
you know, we're not putting money into a project for you. We're investing in your firm. In you. When yeah. you invest in people's firms, you allow them to scale. And it's, it gives a signal. But it also allows you to come to the table for your deal in full and be treated as the owner that you are because people are not counting your pockets. Because when the people think it's your money, they treat you completely differently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, quickly, um, we've got about uh, 30 seconds. But I want to talk about how far philanthropy can go in terms of fixing this problem and whether we need other other resources to commit to it. We do. So and so. thank you for that. Every era is the first, is a pilot round. This is the first phase of this fund. I believe the opportunity is 50 to $100 million plus to raise public and private capital to support this these, this initiative locally. There is more to be done. There are creative tools. Uh, there are already models that people are considering around the country to make this thing, these type of programs happen. So there is more philanthropy can do. But it's not just the money piece. It's the money, it's the commitment, the support, and pushing these agendas forward on a real-time basis. That organizations like Kresge have done quite considerably in a quite active way for decades. We need that continued support. And, I, and just like I push uh, my own partners, the city, and the, and the foundation community, we just need to do more. Yeah. Okay, uh, Rod Hardeman, uh, Operating Manager of Ebiera Fund and CEO and Chief Strategist of Urgent Print. It was really great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with a rabbi about how to tell your life story and what carries the most meaning in life. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.